0: This is Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I'm Alistair Thomas, and welcome to our podcast. I'm joined this week by Africa Dell & editor Ed Reed and digital journalist Hamish Penman. And it's been... Another busy week, and we'll start with a story which, uh, as we record, broke last night. Job cuts planned for Harbour Energy, citing the windfall tax, which, uh, as of this morning, we understand to be uh, in hundreds, hundreds of jobs expected to be cut. Harbour has around 1,700 employees globally, with two of its main offices in Aberdeen, and is the largest oil and gas producer in the North Sea. So, this is the latest in uh, a run of blows to harbour off the back of this uh, levy, the Energy Profits Levy or Windfall Tax. And it's really starting to paint this picture of why they uh, implored in the strongest possible terms uh, uh, for for the Chancellor not to hike this levy. So a bit of background here. The Windfall Tax was raised in November from 25% to 35%, which on top of other levies on the industry took the headline rate of tax 75% on all profits in the North Sea. That's a really high rate of tax for an industry which the government argues struck a balance with record profits seen by the industry uh, in the wake of the invasion of Ukraine. So linked to that levy, as we've talked in this podcast before, is an investment incentive. You get 91% return on new projects, but you really need an investment pipeline to access that. And for Harbour being such a large producer here, uh, you need big projects. So they don't really have that spending pipeline um, in part because they invested during COVID. So their spending is in some ways kind of already been used up uh, and therefore can't get these returns um, in in the main and are now exposed to this 75% tax rate, which is having a big impact on them as the UK's largest producer. Now, Harbour implored... Jeremy Hunt not to raise the tax, saying it would undermine their ability to invest in energy security and their investments in low carbon projects. Harbour backs two major uh, carbon capture clusters here in the UK. That's Acorn in Aberdeenshire and Viking CCS in the Humber. But the Treasury went ahead, increased the tax anyway, and that has caused some problems. Harbour fell off the FTSE 100 index in December. They dropped something like 20% of their share price over the prior 6 months and they said in December they would shun the ongoing North Sea licensing round due to the levy which i think uh, shocked parts of the industry clearly they're not interested necessarily in investing under these circumstances and now and now this these job cuts at their North Sea headquarters in Aberdeen um as uh, you might expect they're keeping quite stum uh, the the official line is, these are all subject to consultation. Um, but as I say, as of this morning, we understand uh, that the figure they're looking at certainly are is in the hundreds uh, in terms of, of job cuts. That's not uh, a too unfamiliar a sight for the industry in Aberdeen. We have, of course, just two years ago seen massive job cuts in the wake of COVID. But I think there had been a hope that the boom and bust of it all was done. but. Probably couldn't argue this is necessarily boom and bust related. This is very much, or certainly the way Harbour is painting it, and evidence would support this, this is very much a government uh, policy um, decision having an impact on uh, the industry. um, And the idea was that it would improve energy security. I'm not sure that's necessarily uh, bearing through. Um, so, you know, a blow to the UK sector. Issues are emerging, evidence of short-sightedness, perhaps. And, you know, if you want companies to invest in renewables and low-carbon opportunities, they need the cash flow to do it. That cash flow's gonna come from oil and gas. And if you tax at least these really high rates, then, yeah, I mean, what, what is gonna happen? This is probably what's gonna happen. Harbour is a big dog here, we should probably point out. Um, they aren't independent, but, you know, formed from the merger of Chrysor and Premier Oil a few years ago. As I said a couple of times, the biggest producer in the UK North Sea. There are other independent companies that are impacted by similar issues. Hopefully, though, it does feel a bit of a perfect storm for Harbour. The hope, and we'll seek to find this out, is that there won't be further job cuts as a result of the windfall tax. Perhaps... Perhaps lesser measures, certainly. Perhaps companies looking elsewhere. We had Enquest CEO this week saying that Asia is the is the big growth area for them now, or suggesting that it might be rather than uh, the North Sea, which is previously the big area for them. So, yeah, a lot of factors playing in here. It feels a little bit like a perfect storm for Harbour. Um, I think this is the biggest blow. Um, to the Treasury policy so far, uh, the Treasury has not replied to our requests for comment, uh, as you might expect. Um, but yeah, I guess what's what's the reading it from you, you, guys side, um, chaps, and uh, Hamish, you were looking at some of their uh, other trading updates this morning.
1: Yeah, uh, Aberdeen's run of good news. Just keeps on keeps on coming. Um, Yeah, they have another trading update this morning um, where they confirmed cuts to. I mean, it was probably implied, but now we've got it in black and white. But cuts to cuts to its planned UK spends. Only going to pursue certain opportunities, those which are high risk, uh, low return, um, and. Yeah, so they, we already knew they weren't going to be in for the next licensing rounds and now they've confirmed that they're not going to go ahead with a well at the Elgin Franklin field as well. No green freeport for Aberdeen, now all these job cuts. I mean, I don't, it, maybe it's too soon to be to be saying this, but I, it, there was so much at the moment about skill shortages within the industry. You'd like to think that Those that do lose jobs will be able to find others, maybe even within oil companies that are making the most out of the investment allowance. But the Treasury can't say it wasn't warned. Um, I think Jeremy Hunt was perhaps trying to call Harbour's bluff to a certain extent, thinking that they wouldn't roll back their spend, they wouldn't cut jobs and... Well, unfortunately, he's been very, very wrong.
2: I mean, to me, it, it seems extraordinary. I mean, I think, you know, obviously, we're, we're, st- we're still looking at, at sort of, you know, fairly high oil prices, right? I mean, I think, you know, like, you know, compared with, you know, for the last few years, it still feels sort of pretty, 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 pretty healthy in terms of oil prices. But it, it, it really just feels like a totally sort of self-inflicted... Uh, government problem doesn't it I mean I think and, and it's that thing isn't it where it just feeds into that sort of you know wider question around around uh, around a lot of the questions around around the windfall tax around why there weren't uh, for instance uh, investment incentives for uh, new renewable energy as well as as oil and gas around you know and it, it just it just yeah it just feels like another another sort of a nail in the in the in the coffin of the government doesn't it obviously we're looking at uh, school strikes we're looking at nurses strikes it just feels like another sort of uh, slug of bad news
1: in terms of uh, for the for the government of the day. Just to come back to Harbour's um, financial updates from this morning, sorry quickly. So they said that um, for 2022, they're expecting to pay tax of around six hundred million dollars. That's more than double 2021's figure, due large part to the the energy profits levy, um, of which is about three hundred and fifty million dollars. of that's already been paid, so the rest is still to come in 2023. And and just on on the windfall tax and the upping of it, I think it seems to be the removal of that sunset clause that if oil fell below a certain point that is doing the most damage, it's it's restricting access to capital because now lenders have to take that into account. Um, And I think it was Neptune's um, chairman yesterday saying that if the government could just tinker that, it would make a, a huge amount of difference to know that if oil falls to for twenty, thirty dollars a barrel in that unlikely um, event, that companies still won't be p- t- being taxed seventy five percent on. Any profits at all that they might make?
0: Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, I think the 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 lack of a that that price floor certainly is the is the underlying um, concern from industry. Um, I, I would also, Ed, yeah, you're you're quite right. The the oil prices are healthy. I think it's fair to say. Um, I suppose the other point we should make, though, is that you know we had this spike around the Ukraine um, invasion, I, I don't know, what did it get to? 120 or something like that? Uh, you know, in December, things got back to pre-Ukraine levels and have since increased slightly, about what, 84 for a barrel of Brent crude now. But it's nothing like the spike it was. And you know, if a company is exposed to more oil than gas, I'm not quite sure what harbors mix is. But, um, you know, you're looking at a much higher tax rate. Um, and if you don't have those investment incentives, you can see how it plays out but um but yeah i mean across the board uh, as as you rightly say prices are still relatively healthy uh, and if you've got those investment incentives, um, hopefully that means other companies won't necessarily have to take uh, as, as drastic steps as as Harbour seems to be taking. Um, but also, yes, it does seem like something of a government-owned um, goal. But we'll follow that closely um, through the day and through the week, I'm sure. So please uh, follow along on energyvoice.com. But we'll leave Harbour for now, and we'll be back in the North Sea in a bit. But first, we'll take a look at Abu Dhabi, which will be hosting the next COP28 climate summit.
2: Energy Voice investigates and reports on what matters in global energy, helping sector leaders understand the geopolitical and economic factors underpinning current events and giving them a view on what's coming over the horizon. Each year, 3.4 million professionals use Energy Voice as a trusted source of breaking news and insight. Subscribers to Energy Voice receive unlimited access to the Energy Voice website, including premium content free and discounted special reports and additional content, free access to the Energy Voice live app featuring a personalized feed and priority access to Energy Voice events. For a 30-day free trial subscription to the Energy Voice website and app, visit energyvoice.com subscriptions. Join the global energy conversation with Energy
0: Voice. Okay, Ed, uh, well, forgive the loaded question, but I guess this is how it's getting framed, Um, and I'm sure we'll talk about Mazdar and renewables, but, I mean, fundamentally, um, the head of ADNOC, a huge oil and gas company, um, president of of a UN climate summit, how how might... the UAE square that one.
2: Yeah, it's it's interesting, isn't it? And and, and obviously incredibly divisive. So 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 just to kind of recap, uh, Sultan Al jabbar the uh, the head of Adnoc, uh, the company that intends to increase oil production to five million barrels per day in pretty short order, has been appointed to be the president of COP twenty eight, which, as you say, is going to be held in in the UAE in uh, October November. Um, so. For those who feel sceptically about the oil industry, uh, one can imagine that it's gone down pretty badly. I, I think I think the, uh, there was a there's a quote from uh, I think it was Oil Change saying something like it's like appointing the head of the of a, of a tobacco company to uh, run a, an anti smoking organisation. Um, clearly, there's a there is a question there of legitimacy, right? I think there's there is a, a kind of a very valid question around how can uh, an official charged with you know essentially keeping the world on track or moving the world back on track possibly more 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 uh, more accurately um to net zero by 2050 also be uh, the head of, of of obviously a sort of a major polluter right i mean i think adnoc does produce fairly low carbon oil and it, and it, and it's making efforts to uh, to to uh, reduce that further but it obviously it's still growing production. It's it's sending a lot of energy around the world. Um, so there is there is a there is a serious question there. I mean, I think the sort of the flip side of the argument says, um, you know, obviously COP presidents have has struggled to uh, maybe kind of cut through some of the noise and and really kind of drive maybe that sort of lasting kind of uh, deep rooted uh, change that perhaps we need. To achieve those kind of net zero goals. Maybe, maybe, maybe uh Sultan al-Jabbar is, is, is a is a is a is a good step in that regard. I think I mean I, I think from from my perspective, it's kind of a sense of um it's it, it gives a sense that that uh Adnok, the Abu Dhabi, the UAE is taking uh the their role seriously, right? I mean I think if you look at how the Middle East and the UAE is 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 thinking about climate change around net zero obviously there's a sense where it's a sort of, um, it's it, there's, there's a lot of prestige related to to, to kind of bringing uh, COP to the Middle East and uh, giving uh, that, that area a bit of a voice. But I think there's also that question around, you know, how do we provide energy access to people in the world who don't have it, right? I mean, I think, you know, one of the, I think possibly my most used statistic on this uh, podcast has been about the 600 million odd people who live in sub-Saharan Africa who don't have access to electricity. And I think... It's those kind of questions around how do you provide that, how do you bridge that gap that, you know, maybe uh, maybe uh, maybe Adnoc can can help sort of shed some light on. But I mean that said, right? So the the a sort of kind of the broader question. We're in the midst of uh, Abu Dhabi Sustainability Week, so. Mazda the UAE Adnoc they're all sort of striking uh, big uh, big kind of renewable energy deals i think Mazda st- signed deals uh, to invest in Kazakhstan Zambia Ethiopia over the last uh, last few days um and also uh, there was a, there was a there was a UK deal to uh, talk more about hydrogen so i think there is a sense where the UAE is clearly positioned to play an important role in the world's kind of net zero plans. Uh, I mean, who knows, right? Uh, it feels like a practical step but possibly not the uh, the sort of theatrical step that we might have seen in the past. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I mean, we obviously don't subscribe to the idea that uh, the entire oil industry is full of climate deniers. Uh, far from it. But yeah, I mean, given given the direction of travel, uh, given the need to ultimately get away from fossil fuels, even even looking at this from a symbolic perspective, it does seem to send. Uh, the wrong signal. As you allude to it, I guess that can be flipped. They might they may well argue, well, kind of as we were getting into with Harbour there, we need the revenues and cash flow from oil and gas to deliver investments in areas like hydrogen they were discussing there. And that's certainly the argument uh in the UK anyway. Um I, I suppose having this man in this position at the head of a COP summit might feel a little bit like having Bernard Looney having presidency if it was in the UK. Um again, I'm not sure that. Sends the right message, whichever way you cut it. Um, I was just, I was just reading some of his comments. Though, I mean, uh, there will be a time when we load the last barrel of oil. Um, uh, uh, Al jabbar said, um, ha- if if the plans go ahead as 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 they expect. But I suppose so often we've seen these um, cop summits um, be met with plenty of strong rhetoric, only for the outcomes to be fairly lackluster. Certainly in the past couple of instances, and. Uh, you know, I, uh, the climate activist argument seems to be that countries aren't willing to do enough to meet 1.5 degrees. It would be very interesting indeed if uh, the head of an oil company would be the one uh, to get them on track. Is is that a possibility? I wonder. Um, I wonder what the outcomes really could be from this uh, COP 28. But something needs to change. That's that seems clear.
2: Yeah, I mean, look, I think it's it's really fair, and I think look, obviously there's going to be a lot of scrutiny about around around how you know COP works, and I think you know COP is very much its own world, isn't it? That. I'm sure that uh, I and others kind of feel it's kind of slightly impenetrable. But I think, look, I think, you know, in terms of, um, you know, being able to maybe kind of cut through to areas where COP has struggled to make traction in the past, Um, around, you know, the sort of the developing world, people who are still struggling with access to electricity, who, you know, want to own a car, who want to own a fridge, those sorts of, um, you know, emerging areas of, of sort of energy demand. I think look obviously there's a, there's a, there's a really big question there isn't there and I think you know in terms of you know some of those kind of really clear goals like you know moving away from coal we all know that it's it's got to be the first step but it's still a hard uh, step to take right and particularly this year and last year given the given the rise in energy prices given how europe has essentially sucked in all sort of uh, spare lng cargoes there's a lot of places that are that are struggling uh increasingly for energy and i think what that means is that if they can't you know places like you know pakistan bangladesh india if they can't you know secure you know well priced lng gas supplies whatever they're going to burn coal right and i think this is such a clear uh, area for uh, for improvement isn't it and i think you know maybe maybe sultan al jabar can you know kind of uh make that case forcefully and say you know like this is this is something that we need to move forwards on i mean i think you know for instance the uh, the the just energy transition partnership deal with uh, south africa struck at uh, cop 26 and then obviously the sort of the indonesia parallel struck in egypt um cop 27 some big cash handouts to uh, to developing countries to to, to move away from uh, high polluting uh, you know energy sources that's the sort of thing it would be great to see you see progress on maybe maybe may, maybe this is the one i mean obviously you know, until until it, until it happens, it's it's there's a lot of speculation. But I think you know there's there's going to be scrutiny and and, and rightly so.
0: Indeed, yeah. Well, I guess we'll follow that on uh, as as time goes on. But thank you uh, for now, Ed. Um, and next up, we will be back in the North Sea with Serica and some discontent among shareholders.
1: As well as these regular weekly news roundups on Energy Voice Out Loud, you'll also find lots of subject-specific box sets in the same feed. And I'm excited to be the anchor for one called the Megawatt Hour. Produced in paid partnership with BDO, the Megawatt Hour brings together experts from across the energy industry and across the world to examine the challenges and the opportunities of energy storage. As more of the grid gets its power from intermittent renewables, energy storage technologies, and batteries in particular, are going to be an increasingly important feature of our infrastructure. Over the course of 10 monthly episodes, we'll be diving deep into the tech, the policy, and the challenges of building out energy storage to help you better understand its opportunities wherever you work in the energy sector. Look out for episodes of the Megawatt Hour in Energy Voice Out Loud, as well as lots of other special episodes wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Hamish, uh, as regular readers will know, Serech is making a deal to, uh, well, acquire a smaller rival, but not everyone's too chuffed about it to, uh, bring us up to speed please no all is not
1: as uh, as rosy as it seems or as rosy as it seems on the surface anyway there is disquiet amongst uh, 0.5% of Serica um, Jeremy Raper of Raper Capital the unfortunately named on both accounts there <laughs> uh, which has a few million, <laughs> uh, few million invested in the firm has shared one of the most incredible eloquent antiquated open letters you're ever likely to read on Serica's proposed acquisition of Tailwinds. At the end of 2022, Serica announced uh, it was moving for uh, the fellow North Sea operator in a shares and cash deal worth a total of £360 million. Um, Completion of the acquisition, which is expected in March 2023, uh, will put Serica into the top 10 club of producers in the UK North Sea. But it is claimed that the true cost of the deal is much higher than that, um, potentially as high as £644 million, pounds, um, as Serica is taking on Tailwind's debt, which, as of the end of November, stood at £277 million, And this is where the sticking point is. So Mr Raper, an Australian-born Harvard graduate and investor based in Japan, and I'm sure there are a pound a dozen over there, uh, <laughs> shared this open letter to Serica's chairman to share his unmitigated disgust at the deal and honestly the wording of this thing is is beautiful he says he cannot recall a transaction so completely irredeemable or one so totally at odds with the wishes of its shareholders and i quote this transaction immediately and irrevocably destroys at least 300 million of Uh, Pounds of extents shareholder value. It is is as if the management, in possession of a pan and desiring an omelette, proceeded to exchange a Rolex for a carton of eggs, only to then claim, well, we did need the eggs. (laughs) Um, He also asked why the proposed merger with Kistos didn't go through last year. There was some kind of ping pong between the two firms with deals going back and forth, and why the Tailwind deal is going forward in its steads. And I could again, in what warped alternate reality could any fiduciary consider this an acceptable outcome, much less trumpet such an exchange as a win for the suffering masses?
0: <laughs> the suffering masses. I like
1: it. I like it. Those suffering masses that Karl Marx wrote about the uh, the investors in big oil companies. Um, <laughs> but I really do recommend you all go and read it because that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's so much more gold in there. When I sent it to Andy as well, he... Kind of replied saying, "I thought this was going to be some eccentric eighty-year-old man with an interest in romantic poetry, but it's yeah a thirty-year-old Harvard graduate or looks about 30. Um Yeah, interestingly, and it may just be because it is a, a work of art, but it's got a great deal of traction on uh, Twitter. Well over a thousand views on the tweets, lots of comments, likes, praise for the issues raised. Um, now it's important to remember he has but a crumb in Serica, um, but there is. Some reason to suggest that he's not alone in his unhappiness. We've had contacts from others after sharing this that are opposed to the deal. And that great metric of interaction on social media shows that, yeah, they are not alone. And you'd imagine this deal will still go through. It's unlikely Serica would have pushed ahead without securing backing first. Um, but much like the the Bold example that we discussed on here before last year, uh, there could well be... a. Uh, a relatively sizable chunk of investors who are whose nose are out of joints and that could potentially come into play again down the line at some point
0: yeah yeah uh, he doesn't sound too happy does he himish <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I guess I, I guess ultimately Serka uh, Uh, is a single-asset company at the moment, whichever way you cut it. They have the the Bruce platform that produces a couple of other fields in the North Sea. Um, You might get some near-field exploration around there, but ultimately, I guess they're quite exposed, aren't they? If something goes wrong, or indeed, even if the fields just dry up, which inevitably they will, um, I spoke to Mitch Flagg, when the deal was announced, and um, I guess t- to give the other side um, of the argument from Raper Capital, um, you know, Tailwind gives Serica, I guess, this whole other production base, some security there, some perhaps more uh, exploration, more assets to get after as well, if they can appraise them, and. Uh, et cetera, which would be attractive to Sereca. If they don't do this, um, then might that be worse? You know, again, serica have been talking about doing a deal for some time. On the basis, of course, is that they are this single asset company at the moment. Um, on the debt side, um, Mitch Flag, the CEO, he said that that's manageable. Um, it's not the most <laughs> attractive sounding thing, but manageable, they'll still have significantly more cash on the balance sheet than debt once the deal goes through. And I guess the other thing, which I'm assuming is um, annoying a lot of existing shareholders at the moment, is in order to, to do this deal, um, Serica are going to have to do a, a significant deal of dilution. They're issuing 111 million new shares, that's about a third of the company. Um, And, yeah, I can see why existing shareholders wouldn't be too chuffed with that. Uh, Apparently, Mercuria, the commodities firm which backs Tailwind to their takeover target, they wanted to stay in. You know, it wasn't a case of Serica paying more cash to do this deal, which surely they could have if that option was on the table, but... uh, Flag was saying that wasn't on the table. Um, it was just, you know, Mercuria, they wanted to stay in, so hence they're, di- they're dealing in shares um, to, to make this deal happen. But yeah, I mean, if you're a big investor uh, or you've sunk a lot of money into to Cereca, if you're not a massive sharehold, uh, shareholder in the grand scheme of things, I can see why you might be a little irked by that, shall we say. But uh, yeah, it's next week that we're going to get the decision, isn't it, Hamish?
1: I believe it is, yeah. And I think that Mo- Mercuria point is quite an important one, I suppose, because the the way that things are normally done in that backers invest, take a firm to a certain point and then sell it on for a healthy profit. The, the fact that Mercuria are staying on, perhaps these, uh, would suggest that they are benefiting largely from, from this deal and, and from doing so. And and They will become um, a strategic investor in Serica. They'll get a 25.2% holding and we'll have the chance to put a couple of non-executive directors uh, onto the boards. Uh, I think there are concerns that will destroy um, shareholder value. Um, Are they Swiss-based, Mikira, I think?
0: Oh, quite possibly. Uh, I think that's right.
1: Generally, they are, aren't they, traders? (laughs) What are
2: you
0: implying there, uh, (laughs) (laughs) Edward?
2: I'm just saying that they love the alpine air, the, uh, you know, yodeling.
0: It's the the air. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it is. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Chocolate. I don't know. It's the chocolate. That must be it. I,
2: I mean I, I I kind of think that you know you you mentioned that it it sounds like it's a done deal, Hamish, but I mean, I think there, there is always this element of uncertainty, isn't there, right with uh, with kind of when companies kind of get to this point. I think there were a couple of uh, mergers uh, that I was kind of watching last year that fell apart quite dramatically. and now um I mean it's kind of it was it's kind of tangentially related to the North Sea Capricorn energy with its plan to become part of uh, new med is uh in a sort of a protracted slanging match with um with a group of uh, sort of activist investors uh and it's looking increasingly likely that the uh you know the capricorn deal is going to face some real challenges i think the latest count says something like 40 percent of shareholders had, had you know sort of publicly come out against the deal so i mean i think you know generally one does always assume that these kind of deals will go through but there is always the potential for an upset you
0: never know raper capital might uh, stage a coup and uh you know yeah no i mean look at that it, it does seem yeah i mean certainly he's been the most vocal but uh it sounds certainly from what you're saying hamish that he's, he's not the only one um we can we can see that via twitter so you never know uh, and uh, we'll certainly keep a close eye um Next
1: week, even if it doesn't go through, he's won some fans. He's what he's won me over as a fan. I'm gonna, keep, <laughs> I'm gonna keep an eye on what he's doing because I, not, I think that's the most enjoyment I've derived out of anything in in 2023 was was thumbing through that letter.
0: Early days, yeah. But yeah I mean, maybe, maybe we
2: should get him into uh, to to write some op eds Oh, oh gosh, yeah, L- libel all over the shop. <laughs> the
1: lawyers will have a field day with that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, that's right.
0: Okay, uh, well, thank thanks, Hamish. Uh, and that is it for this latest episode of Energy Voice Out Loud. Thank you to my colleagues, Ed, and again, Hamish, for joining me. I've been Alison Thomas, and thanks for listening.
1: Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com